0: You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead, your next stop, the Twilight Zone.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, tonight I shall talk to you about glorious conformity, about the delight and the ultimate pleasure of our unified society. You recall, of course, that directionless, unproductive, over-sentimentalised era of man's history when it was assumed that dissent was some kind of natural and healthy adjunct of society. We also recall that during this period of time there was a strange over sentimentalized concept that it mattered not that people were different that ideas were at variance with one another that a world could exist in some kind of crazy patchware kind of makeup with foreign elements glued together in a crazy quilt. I say to you now, I say to you now there is no such thing as a permissive society because such a society cannot exist. They will scream at you and rant and rave and conjure up some dead and decadent picture of an ancient time when they said, all men are created equal. Thankfully, not my words, but the words of the leader in the episode that we're gonna be discussing tonight. But I'll begin by doing a little bit of digging on the origin of the phrase that gave this episode its title, Now this is taken from a website called phrases.org and it gives the meaning as the perception of beauty is subjective, of course that makes sense, and then it gives the origin. This saying first appeared in the 3rd century BC in Greek. It didn't appear in its current form in print until the 19th century, but in the meantime there were various written forms that expressed much the same thought. In 1588, the English dramatist John Lilly wrote, As near to fancy to beauty as the prick to the rose, as the stalk to the rind, as the earth to the root. Shakespeare expressed a similar sentiment in Love's Labour's Lost. Good Lord Boyet, my beauty, though but mean, needs not be painted flourish of your praise. Beauty is bought by judgment of the eye. Not uttered by base sale of Chapman's tongues. Benjamin Franklin wrote, Beauty, like supreme dominion, is but supported by opinion. And David Hume in 1742 wrote, Beauty and things exist merely in the mind which contemplates them. So very close to the title of this episode. But the person who's widely created as coining the saying in its current form, is Margaret Wolfe Hungerford, who wrote many books, often under the pseudonym of the Duchess. In Molly Bourne, in 1878, there's the line, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Which is the earliest citation that this website can find in print, and I couldn't do any much better, so I think we will accept that as it is, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and probably, maybe the most simple and elegant way of putting it. So, perhaps it's a testament to the quality of tonight's episode that these days most will think of the Twilight Zone before they think of Molly Bourne.
2: When will they take the bandages off? How long, nurse? Until they decide whether or not they can fix your face. Oh, I guess it... Pretty bad, isn't it? I've seen worse. Well, yes, but... It's pretty bad, isn't it? Oh, I know it's pretty bad. Hmm. Ever since I can remember, ever since I was a little girl, people have turned away when they looked at me. Funny. The very first thing I can remember is another little child screaming when she looked
0: at me. I, <laughs> I never really wanted to be beautiful, you know. I mean, I. I never wanted to look like a painting.
2: I never even wanted to be loved, really, I just just wanted people not to scream when they looked at me. When, nurse? When, when, when will I take the bandages off? Maybe tomorrow. Maybe the next day.
1: Even for a show so diverse as the Twilight Zone, from the moment this one starts, there's a quality, a feeling, an atmosphere that we've never seen before. That soft music the moody lighting, and that rich voice coming from the woman lying in the bed. The nurses talk about her with pity, but also sometimes the things they say are bordering on cruelty, sometimes crossing over the line into cruelty. And then another mysterious figure enters.
0: Suspended in time and space for a moment, your introduction to Miss Janet Tyler, who lives in a very private world of darkness, a universe whose dimensions are the size, thickness, length of a swath of bandages that cover her face. In a moment, we'll go back into this room, and also in a moment, we'll look under those bandages, keeping in mind, of course, that we're not to be surprised by what we see, because this isn't just a hospital, and this patient 307 is not just a woman. This happens to be the twilight zone. And Miss Janet Tyler, with you, is about to enter it.
1: First broadcast on November 11th, 1960. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Douglas Hayes. Now, in the beginning there was a bit of a legal situation about the use of the name Eye of the Beholder and martin grahams jr in unlocking the door to a television classic explains it like this when the episode aired on november 11 1960 the title on the screen and on advanced publicity was eye of the beholder when it was rerun on june 15 1962 the title card had been altered to read a private world of darkness why the titular change As Serling admitted in a letter dated August 31st, 1962, Eye of the Beholder had its title changed because of a legal hassle. There had been a program on the old General Electric Theater a number of years ago utilizing the same title, and in the face of threatened litigation, we altered it to Private World of Darkness. Well, I'm not sure that anyone remembers the General Electric Theater version, so I think history has brought Rod Sailing out on top on that one. So since we've been doing season two and Rod Sailing has been doing his narrations on screen, I've kind of fallen into a routine of rating how he appears in the episode. And I don't think we've had one yet that really ticks all of the boxes for me until now. I think it's beautifully done. The nurses sit and talk. Then the camera pans up to a smoked glass type of screen and a figure walks behind it. Now, I hadn't seen this one for a while and I thought it was one of the doctors and that's what they want us to think, I believe. You know, they're playing with us a little because that initial silhouette doesn't look like Rod sailing. I don't think it is. But then out he walks to greet us and gives us a simple but strong opening narration very much playing up to the mystery of the episode so as introductions go this one gets full marks from me. So this is our second episode in a row directed by Douglas Hayes and our third this season along with Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room and The Howling Man and we'll see two more before the season's out with the episodes Dust and The Invaders. So I don't think there's much more to be said about Douglas Hayes in terms of trivia. Did I mention that he also directed in the Night Gallery? He also wrote the teleplays for some of the stories. I can't remember, but he did. If you look at the stories The Dead Man and Brenda, then you'll see his work there. But maybe above all episodes, I have the Beholder is the one that really cements him as one of the great directors of the Twilight Zone. In these opening scenes, his wife Joanna Hayes had a role as the receptionist who takes the cigarettes on the counter just before Rod Sailing enters. So the big, would we call it a gimmick? I don't know, but the way they're selling this episode to us is obviously we don't see anyone's faces apart from Rod Sailing until the end. And they need to try and tell a story. And they're telling this story and not showing us the faces of any of the actors. So you gotta have a way you're gonna do this and the director Douglas Hayes said, what I wanted to do was try and hold their attention and yet not let them see any faces without having the audience say, hey, something's wrong, they're not showing the faces. In other words, there is constantly a very subtle camera movement. So you're not aware of the fact that when someone turns around, for example, and starts to turn towards you, Someone else walks in front of the camera just at the moment he's turning so you don't actually see the front of his face. So obviously there is the direction that becomes part of this but also the voices of the actors and he had this to say I had the idea that the voice of these monster people would be very sympathetic Rod was surprised at that He'd not intended them to be that way but he liked it So I interviewed the actors for that show without ever seeing them I sat in a room with my back to the door. They'd come in. I'd read the part with them and listen only to their voices. I picked the people with the most sympathetic voices I could get. If we are going to believe that these people are the norm, then they have to sound like nice people. And then he goes on to say, The opposite is also true. Under the bandages, I wanted a voice that suggested it could belong to an ugly person. I wanted a voice with character and harshness. So we used a radio actress named Maxine Stewart, a marvellous actress, and she played the part of Janet Tyler under the bandages. Later, when we unwrapped the bandages, Donna Douglas emerged. So the part was actually played by two actresses. So we'll come back to the ladies who played Janet a little bit later on.
3: We'll have those bandages off you very soon. I expect you're pretty uncomfortable. Well, I'm used to bandages on my face. Mm, I've no doubt. It's your ninth visit here it is the ninth
2: the 11th <laughs> you know sometimes i i think i've lived my whole life inside of a dark cave the walls are gauze and the wind that blows into the mouth of the cave smells of ether and disinfectant. because there's a there's a kind of a comfort living inside this
0: cave it's wonderfully private Nobody can
1: ever see me. So Janet Tyler speaks with her doctor. A doctor we've met recently in another episode directed by Douglas Hayes. Nervous man in a $4 room. He is of course William D. Gordon. And when we're watching an episode that relies so heavily on voice work, you can hear why he's chosen. He does have a great voice. And it's this voice that fills in a little more backstory to Janet Tyler the lady in the bed. It's
2: hopeless, isn't it, Doctor? I'll never look
3: in the quickly. Well, that's hard to say. Up to now, you, you haven't responded to the shots, the medications, any of the proven techniques. Frankly, you've stumped us, Miss Tyler. Nothing we've done so far has made any difference at all. However, we're, we're very hopeful for what this last treatment may have accomplished. There's no telling, of course, till we get the bandages off. I'm sorry your case is not one that we could have handled with plastic surgery, but your bone structure, flesh type... many factors prohibit the surgical approach. Your eleventh visit.
2: No more after this, are they, Doctor? No more
3: tries. Eleven is the mandatory number of experiments. We're not permitted to do any more after eleven.
1: A small detail perhaps but as the doctor is looking out of the window if you notice the view a very uniform row of buildings going off into the distance it's very ordered very fitting with the theme but also slightly artificial looking in a way that I think is to its benefit this episode does have a feel all of its own and I do think that the look of the outside well just adds that little detail to it So Janet has her 11th procedure, and the limit is 11. If this doesn't work, then there's nothing else to try. Each of us is afforded as much opportunity as possible to fit
3: in with society. In your case, think of the time and the money and the effort expended to make you look... Look like what, Doctor?
1: Normal the way you'd like to look. You know, some of these exchanges between Janet and the Doctor I do find fascinating. And it's the first episode for a little while where I think we're getting that poetic Rod sailing dialogue back. The Doctors and the nurses all talk to Janet in a very caring way. They do seem to have a genuine concern for her. But every now and again they will say something that just digs at her ever so slightly. Something that says you're not normal and the sad thing is Janet believes that too and she accepts that and she doesn't question it. The doctor tells Janet that if this treatment doesn't work then she may move to an area where people of her kind congregate. Now that says a lot people of your kind. It almost seems a polite way of saying something very bigoted. I'm not actually saying you're ugly or they're ugly but I'm just saying people of your kind. It makes it worse in a way, you know, substitute ugly with any race or disability or sexuality we can, and you can really see where Rod Sailing's going with this one.
0: People of my kind. (laughs) Congregated.
3: (laughs) You mean segregated. You ain't in prison, don't you, Doctor?
2: You're talking about a ghetto, aren't you? A ghetto designed for freaks!
1: Miss Tyler! So we get a bit more information about the world that these people, these characters are living in, and we find out that she is not just trying to conform to what society deems to be normal, but what the state actually legislates as normal. And we'll come to that one again soon. Our next scene illustrates what a great directing job Douglas Hayes did on it. It's a conversation between the doctor and the nurse, and as they move around it's an almost balletic kind of dance between them to keep their faces out of shot. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. says that the actors were required to wear their makeup at all times apart from a couple of scenes. Which you might think is a bit of a cheat because there are a couple of times when we see parts of their faces and it's clear that if they were wearing the makeup, we would see parts of it. You know, but I'll give them this though, because it is done so well, I don't feel like it's a cheat. You know, the whole mood of it, the feel of it, the intriguing story is all just misdirecting us from the fact that we can't see their faces. And I'm not just saying this, I do get caught up in the story and I do forget that I'm not seeing their faces. So the conversation itself shows that the doctor is more sympathetic to Janet's situation than we first thought.
3: Why must we feel that way, nurse? What is the dimensional difference between beauty and something repellent? Is it skin deep? Less than that. Why? Why shouldn't people be allowed to be different? Why? Doctor,
2: be careful what you're talking about.
3: I know, treason.
2: Oh, this case has upset your balance, your sense of values.
1: Well, I suppose. So then we're introduced to a new element. In a nice bit of Twilight Zone predicting flat-screen televisions, the leader addresses the state and the leader is played by an actor called George Kemus. He is one of our hard-working actors of the time that I always talk about with the usual credits like Wagon Train and Gunsmoke. He only appeared in one Twilight Zone but he did appear as a character called Crowley in a night gallery segment called Green Fingers. We don't get a good look at him in this but if you do an internet search on him you'll see him. He seemed to do bit of everything in terms of the characters that he played. He played gangsters, cowboys, and even a Native American.
0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, our leader. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen.
3: Tonight, I shall talk to you about glorious conformity, about the delight and the ultimate pleasure of our unified society.
1: So here it is, a state that enforces conformity. And it's perhaps not as out there as you'd think in this modern world. You only need to look at what's going on in Russia at the moment. The way the law treats gay people and the knock-on effect of that. So the Twilight Zone might be exaggerating to make a point. But it's still a point well made. And unfortunately it doesn't seem that much of an exaggeration sometimes. But we'll come back to this again soon as well. So the bandages come off and, famously, the procedure has been a failure and Janet is still the same as she was. So let's pause for a moment while they take off those bandages and discuss the ladies that played Janet. So Janet under the bandages, as we heard earlier, is Maxine Stewart. Now, she only passed away in 2013. She did work a lot and What fascinates me about this is, it's something I've seen on a lot of other actors' bios, is not only did people jump from show to show, but they would often come back to shows they'd worked on before and play different parts. So, an example is Maxine Stewart in Dr. Kildare, a show of the time. It lists her as playing Nurse Mary Ayres in a 1962 episode. Then, in 1963, she plays Admitting Nurse in another, Nurse Lucy Hyde in another, and then comes back to playing Nurse Mary Ayres again twice. You know, I don't know how accurate that is. IMDB isn't infallible. But, you know, there you see it. very often actors would kind of come back to shows that they'd been in before and play different people. Now, when Janet is revealed, it's an actress called Donna Douglas. And sadly, we've only just lost Donna, Uh, she passed away in early 2015. Maybe not as many credits as a lot of other actors we've come across in the Twilight Zone. But there are a couple more Twilight Zone connections. IMDb lists here as playing debutante in Cavender Is Coming, so maybe someone without much to do in that episode, I can't quite recall. But we'll check it out in the future. And she was also in the Night Gallery episode Last Night for a Dead Druid. Perhaps one of the reasons she wasn't as prolific is that she found herself on a hit show for almost 10 years. And that show is The Beverly Hillbillies, where she played Ellie Mae Clampett. So I imagine if you are of a certain age, then Ellie Mae could have been your first TV crush. I'm not quite old enough to have watched that show the first time round, but I do remember it on reruns and... Donna Douglas did make quite an impression. She was incredibly beautiful and she did have an exuberance about her. Now Douglas Hayes uh, went on to say when he was talking about the unwrapping of the bandages, later when we unwrapped the bandages Donna Douglas emerged. So the part was actually played by two actresses. I thought we were going to use Maxine's voice afterward as well, dubbing Donna after the bandages came off. But Donna was there throughout all the shooting, watching everything and listening, and she surprised me. When it came time to do the unwrapping scene, she had learned the vocal intonations and did her own dialogue, sounding just like Maxine Stewart. So I suppose there is some level of irony in this this whole casting thing, you know, the way they've cast someone for their voice and someone for their looks when person who was cast for their looks had that quality that they could bring to the voice if if required you know and Donna Douglas said I was a newcomer from New York they were looking for a woman of exceptional beauty and they picked me looking back I can express how proud I was to be part of the show it was fascinating how they put that together the flesh-colored makeup on the nurses and doctors they put makeup on me too but I don't know why since I was supposed to be under the bandages. I don't know why they had someone different underneath the bandages. I would have done that. I guess it was the woman's voice they were going after, but I had the same voice.
3: All right, Miss Tyler, I'm going to remove the last of the bandages now. Would you like a mirror? Uh, No.
2: No, thank you, no mirror.
3: All right then. I want you to remember this, please. Miss Tyler, are you listening?
0: Yes, I'm listening.
3: Now, we have done all we could do. If we've been successful, well and good, there are no problems. But if, on the other hand, this final treatment has not achieved the desired result, please remember, Miss Tyler, that you can still live a long and fruitful life among people of your own kind. Well, as soon as we discover the results, we'll...
1: Either
3: release you or... Doctor? Yes.
1: So the big reveal, and as Twilight Zone twists go, they don't come any more iconic than this one. To our eyes, Janet is a beautiful woman, and it's everyone else who is ugly. And Janet runs through the halls, confronted by more and more of these pig-faced people, with the voice of the leader ringing through her ears, preaching about conformity. It's a good reveal that builds and builds until Janet runs into a room where she meets Mr. Smith.
2: Mr. Tyler, we have a lovely village and wonderful people. I think you're going to like it where I'm going to take you. You'll, uh, you'll be with your own kind, and in a little while, You'll be amazed how little a while. You'll feel a sense of great belonging. You'll feel a sense of being loved. And you will be loved, Miss Tyler. Miss Tyler, would you get your things now? We can leave any time.
0: Mr. Smith?
2: Yes? Why do we have to look like this? I don't know, Miss Tyler. I really don't know. But you know something? It doesn't matter. There's an old saying. A very, very old saying. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. When we leave here, when we go to the village, Try to think of that, Miss Tyler. Say it over and over to yourself. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder.
1: So our handsome man, Mr. Smith, was played by Edison Stroll and he died in 2011. So these three actors lived good long lives and we've only lost them quite recently. And he had this to say about the episode in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. He said, Well I was kind of in the dark, I didn't know what they were doing, and it was a bit odd. I suspect Donna Douglas was in on it because she knew how the story was working, but I was there for just that one scene, and then walked away with her, so I wasn't all too sure why there were people with monstrous makeup on their faces. Looking back now, I'm aware of what they were doing, and it certainly was magnificent. So we have the reveal of the pig-faced people as they've kind of come to be known in their casual conversation. And it is a very iconic look, you know, we all know these faces now. And it's also influenced a very famous makeup artist, a hero of mine, Rick Baker, who did films like An American Werewolf in London and Greystoke. And he was actually influenced by this episode and at the age of 15 he managed to reproduce the same makeup jobs as uh, as the pig people had so there it is beauty is in the eye of the beholder is there a more elegant and effective way of portraying that than this story perhaps there is but i haven't come across it yet there are a lot of things to say about this one there are probably many of us listening to this who have felt like outcasts at some point felt different and singled out for that difference whether it's through some sort of physical attribute race or sexuality or religion you know this episode will speak to anyone who's ever felt like that but there are probably also some of us who haven't really experienced that and not through any great effort to conform but You know, through time, place, and circumstances, they just do conform, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it does perhaps sometimes mean that they won't have that understanding of what it's like to be the outsider. And I think that's what Sailing's going for here. You know, the outcasts already know what it feels like to be the outcasts. So he puts the beautiful people in their shoes. Mr. Smith talks about going to a place where Janet will feel like she belongs and we as the audience want that for her, but we're hopefully also sad that she has to go somewhere else to feel like that. If you do segregate people, and I hate to use the term with their own kind, then that belonging will develop, but don't be surprised if resentment towards the people who put them there develops too. Just listen how severe it sounds when the doctor says your own kind to Janet compared to how reassuring it sounds when it comes from Mr. Smith. Some people might call this episode a little heavy-handed now. It's hard to imagine a time when we didn't know what the reveal was. The pig-faced people have become iconic images and this is one of those Twilight Zone episodes that has really become a part of pop culture. I personally don't find it heavy handed though. I think that whether by design or accident, the way it's filmed with nobody's face being seen until the climax really strips what the story is about down to its core. It seems to me that the hiding of the faces isn't just there to guard the reveal at the end but it's also there to remove anything distinguishing from both Janet and everyone else so that we like Janet for her struggle and for her pain and we like the Doctor for his compassion towards her even though he is conflicted at times we don't see either of their faces, we just like them for what they're about so part of us buying this film technique of not being able to see everyone's face It's not just about guarding the reveal, it's so that we perceive things as Janet does through voices and sound because she can't see. So in a way we can't either. And it's only right that we see everyone's faces when she does. Like I said, this episode has entered popular culture and the amount of times that something is parodied is often an indicator of how much something has penetrated popular culture. This one has been parodied on The Simpsons, Family Guy, Futurama and several other shows. Now back when we talked about the monsters are due on Maple Street, we talked about that episode being remade for the early 2000s series and Eye of the Beholder actually was remade too, but this was a much more literal adaptation. The script was for the most part identical. It's certainly a watchable episode but to my mind it is very inferior to the original one and this isn't me saying I don't like remakes I'm often a defender of them I like to see new takes on existing ideas but the early 2000s remake exists to me to show how good direction really counts you know a script Absolutely, it's very important, but a good script can still be made into poor television. And when we compare the two versions, it's a a really good example of that. The 2000s episode is all, you know, light, brightness. uh, It's almost very cheap in in how it's made. And I I know it kind of was a cheap show to make. You know, the makeup, they have melted face effects rather than the pig face people, which is fine, it's a choice. But when it's taken out of this noirish kind of moody atmosphere, the story just really does lose something. So, you know, it's a curio and it's there to watch if you want to, but I don't think I'll be returning to that one anytime soon. So does this episode, The Eye of the Beholder, live up to its reputation? I absolutely think it does, and it distills one of humanity's great struggles or its great flaws, whatever you want to call it, into a simple but wonderfully atmospheric and effective episode. So I think we'll end at the beginning, at the point where Rod Serling first thought of the idea for Eye of the Beholder. He said, this is one of those wild ones I came up with while lying in bed. And staring into the darkness. Nothing precipitated it beyond the writer's instinct to tell an interesting story. Also, as is often the case on the Twilight Zone, I would like to make a thematic point. The monsters A Jew on Maple Street was a parable having to do with prejudice. Eye of the Beholder on the other hand made a comment on conformity no audience likes a writer's opinion thrust down their gullet as simply a tract. It has to be dramatised and made acceptable, palatable and with dramatic form. This is how we designed Eye of the Beholder and I think we were successful.
0: Now the questions that come to mind. Where is this place and when is it? What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation from that norm? You want an answer? The answer is it doesn't make any difference because the old saying happens to be true beauty is in the eye of the beholder in this year or a hundred years hence on this planet or wherever there is human life perhaps out amongst the stars beauty is in the eye of the beholder lesson to be learned in the twilight zone
1: Let's catch up on a little feedback from friends of the Twilight Zone podcast. A friend of the show, Andrew Schneider, writes, Dear Tom, i finally managed to get completely caught up on the Twilight Zone podcast and I thought I'd drop you an email to tell you how much I've enjoyed the last few episodes. Luke did a wonderful job as host and for that he has my heartfelt thanks for keeping the flame alive. But it's fantastic to have you back as a guide to and through The Fifth Dimension, welcome back. Thank you, Andrew. It's always a treat to hear readings on your show of original short stories on which episodes of The Twilight Zone were based, and The Howling Man is my new favorite in this line. I have to confess this episode had never particularly been a favorite of mine. Perhaps it was because the final image of Robin Hughes as Satan struck me as stagey and stereotypical. After listening to your review, I went back and watched it again. Looking at the episode as a Twilight Zone take on Universal horror films, as you suggested, gave me a new appreciation for it. I had the opportunity to re watch Universal's Werewolf of London a few weeks ago, and I can definitely see the similarities between actor Henry Hall's transformation in that film from man to werewolf and Hugh's transformation from man into devil. But what I enjoyed most about this episode on this latest viewing was Carradine's scene as he attempts, unsuccessfully, to convince Ellington that the howling man in the cell is in fact devil. Between Carradine's performance and his garb, I couldn't help but think he was drawing on his experience playing Aaron to Charlton Heston's Moses in the Ten Commandments. Another very roundabout link back to the Planet of the Apes series. Overall, I prefer Howling Man as a short story, largely because of the richer characterisation and backstory it gives to Ellington, but I can see now why some viewers count this as one of the greats. I'd put it as a near-great myself, not quite the classic Eye of the Beholder is, but it definitely is worth watching. You mentioned that you've not had the opportunity to watch Requiem for a heavyweight, the original Playhouse 90 version starring Jack Palance, is available in its entirety on youtube and it's definitely worth a watch another that i would highly recommend if you haven't seen it would be patterns i've only seen bits and pieces of the craft television theater version which won sailing his first emmy it too is available on youtube though in very poor quality i've seen the 1956 film version in its entirety though and it's one of the best dramatic renditions of cutthroat corporate politics i've ever seen and the film is available for streaming on Amazon. He goes on to say, "'Much as I enjoyed Rod Serling's treatment "'of Planet of the Apes, my favorite film of his, "'indeed, one of my all-time favorite films, "'is Seven Days in May, the film, "'which deals with a military plot, "'to overthrow an unpopular American president "'at the height of the Cold War, "'benefits from an all-star cast. "'Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster, "'Frederick March, Ava Gardner, and even an uncredited John Hausman in a rare pre-paper-chase acting role. John Frankenheimer directed this fresh off The Manchurian Candidate, and it is every bit the equal of that classic. I've read the novel by Fletcher Niebel and Charles Bailey, on which The Seven Days is based, and Sailing's script is superior to the source material. In any other year, it would have earned him at least an Oscar for Best Writing Screenplay based on material from another medium, as they used to call Best Writing Adapted Screenplay. As it happened, 1965 put him up against Beckett, Doctor Strangelove, Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady and Zorba the Greek. With a competition like that, Seven Days didn't even get nominated. Sailing's comment on the experience was that there really was no way a screenwriter could win, adapting someone else's book for film. If the film did well, the original author would get the credit. If it did poorly, the screenwriter would get that blame. That's all for now. Again, welcome back. Best, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. And um, a great kind of whistle-stop tour through some of Rod Sailing's other work, which is, you know, I really am kind of entrenched in the Twilight Zone, so So maybe one day, if we ever get to the end of the Twilight Zone, I'll take a look at those other things, and uh, you never know. That's one for the future. Now, a gentleman called John Ballantyne also emailed me. He said, hi, Tom. Many thanks for giving Campfire Radio Theatre a listen. Now, what that is is a show that uh, John produces called Campfire Radio Theatre, obviously, and I've got something of a, a passion for uh, radio plays and that kind of thing it started out with shows like dimension x and x minus one but i've explored it a bit further now with, with some other ones and you can find some of those shows on gentlemen's House records but john produces a kind of modern equivalent and you can find it on and you can find it on itunes just tap that in there you'll find it and it's a very well produced show very well written show and i enjoy it quite a bit so check that out if if you like that kind of thing too he's very pleased that i enjoyed their first show but he believes that the show evolves in quality quite a bit and benefits from improved acting and technical expertise so you know i can definitely see how that goes i've, I've you know even in my humble podcast i've hope i've improved over time so john goes on to say truthfully rod sailing is no small influence on our own little audio anthology I recall watching The Howling Man in reruns back in the 80s as a teen and it stuck with me all these years along with many other fine episodes of the original series that I find myself revisiting regularly to this day. The Rod Serling-esque twist is something I've always embraced in my writing as well. I think in the short story form, which is what most anthologies are comprised of, the literary equivalent of the curveball is a remarkably effective tool when used well. Your reading of the Charles Beaumont original short story was very well done. The added sound effects and ambience was quite haunting and set the stage for what is a darkly atmospheric and chilling tale. I had always been interested but never managed to read the original piece that this episode was based on. And then he goes on to say, Your podcast has turned into a must-listen comprehensive guide that should benefit any true TZ fan in my humble opinion. Your thorough research into the show is always illuminating and enjoyable. Much gratitude to you, sir, for the time and effort you've put into this podcast. Kindest regards, John. Well, thank you, John. And I must say that, you know, I did get, uh, it seems a long time ago now since I've done it, but it's only a couple of months, but I really did get a lot of good feedback about that episode, The Howling Man developing that ability to read stories is something that i'm you know i'm really eager to do and i think the howling man is the first time that i've really kind of nailed it in my own opinion you know i've listened back to some of the earlier readings i've done now and i really want to go back and re-record those which is something that i might kind of work out in the background because i don't think they kind of come up to that standard but they're great stories and they deserve that level of reading and attention that I gave to the Howling Man. So, you know, that's something I'll work away on and uh, I will let you know if I if I get that completed. So that's all from me for this time in the Twilight Zone podcast. If you want to send any feedback about any of the episodes, then email me at tom at networkcom Now, if you wouldn't mind indulging me for a moment, I just want to tell you about... A couple of things that are going on at the website at the moment. The website address is gentlemen's grindhouserecords.com but if you put in the network.com it'll take you there as well. Basically it's kind of turned into a bit of a podcast network. There is some old-time radio on there if, if that's your thing but there's also my other show the strange and deadly show which is looking at the section 3 video nasties from the 80s. Now that's something I present with my friend Chris Clayton and very different from the Twilight Zone podcast, very different tone. And but it's to its credit, you know, my my friend Chris brings a whole different energy to it, which I really like. So if you're a fan of horror movies, then I think you might like that one. Also, there's a show on there called Gentleman's Grand House Radio. Now what that is, is an interview podcast where I am playing for you some of the interviews that I've done over the years you know some of them are with Twilight Zone people I'm gonna replay the ones I've used in the Twilight Zone podcast but there's others that I'm gonna play from horror celebrities so I started off with an interview with Joe Pilato from the George Romero film Day of the Dead in episode 2 I speak to Gary Smart who is a documentary filmmaker who's made the documentary about the Hellraiser series and that's in episode two and then in episode three i'm going to play an interview with tony todd you know the great actor who's been in Candyman, who's been in the rock who's been too much to really say he's been in star trek you know all kinds of things so that's a monthly podcast that i do and you can check that out there too now some people might say well tom you know you barely get the twilight zone podcast out what are you doing doing all this other stuff you know, the way I see it is I need to keep this fresh for me. The the Twilight Zone podcast takes such a lot of work that... Doing the other stuff is kind of like a palate cleanser. And... By doing that, I get to recharge my Twilight Zone batteries. And I'll come back to this. Now... I have been trying to do Twilight Zone podcast on a monthly basis. Not always successful. But it's what I'm going to try and stick to. And we'll see how we go with that. You know, I think if I used all my time doing the twilight zone podcast i would probably get a bit burned out on it and this way you know when i've got a few different things going on by the time i come back to the twilight zone podcast i'm really looking forward to getting back into it so uh, you know i hope you'll give my other shows a listen because i enjoy doing them and uh, and you know it, they're doing quite well so i hope you enjoy them too right that's all from me next time we're looking at an episode starring william shatner and it's called the nick of time. I'll see you then.